0: Good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. As you turn to Ephesians 3, I want to remind you about the context and the content of what we can expect in Ephesians 3. It begins with really the run-in from chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2 is where Paul extolled these Ephesians and the sovereignty of God, about God's choice and election of them and his adoption his desire to create a people for his own possession, redeeming them through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and sealing them to himself now and for all of eternity in the power of his Holy Spirit. His salvation, God's, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. His grace is lavished on believers as a gift so that no man can ever boast because, as chapter 2, verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The blood of Jesus Christ reconciled God to man. It further reconciled men to each other. There is no distinction, no division between Jew and Gentile. The biggest division that humanity has ever known. No distinction, none at all. We are all one new man in Christ. The distinctions that are made up today are fictitious, superficial, and artificial. This is the gospel. Paul was made a minister by revelation of God. Once it was a mystery, now it's been revealed. And chapter 3, verse 10 says, this purpose was why. Chapter 3, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is individual salvation turned corporate in the church where you sit today. In the church of Jesus Christ. Corporately manifesting the wisdom of God. But there's a problem in this message. We discussed this a few weeks back. This is a message called the gospel, that is, the good news. And it is coming from a man bound in chains in Rome, in a prison. There seems to be a wicked contradiction right here in the pages of the text. How can good news go together with prison chains, persecution, suffering, and pain? Paul stumbled right over the top of this glaring hypocrisy as he went into prayer in chapter 3, verse 1, interrupting himself, inserting a parenthesis, if you will, Instead of glossing over the issue, he explained that suffering for the mystery is to be expected. Christ said, the way that they've treated me, they'll treat you the same. So this suffering is perfectly wonderful. It makes us more like Christ. And better still, God uses suffering to give greater grace. All to his glory and all for your good. He says as much in chapter 3 verse 13. He says, therefore, the conclusion of this parenthesis, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Tribulations, glory. It's a glorious message. Sovereignty of God, suffering, it's all included. With this explanation of suffering and the sovereignty of God and the gospel, Paul offers the prayer that God interrupted. We see the prayer in verses 14 through 21. It's a prayer of transition, brothers and sisters. It's a prayer of mobilization and motivation. As we bridge the gap between chapters 1 through 3, which is Paul speaking about doctrine, the indicatives of Scripture, and moving into the doing of Scripture, the imperatives of Scripture. It's about taking what you need to believe in chapters 1 through 3 and moving it into what you how you need to behave in chapters 4 through 6. So this prayer acts like a bridge. John Stott says, pray, Paul is praying that God's wonderful plan which he has been elaborating on, may be even more completely fulfilled in his reader's experience. You've been told the facts about life, God, Christ, sin, salvation. Now go experience the faith and the love and the fullness of God that's been given to you as a gift. John MacArthur says... The two things a pastor should be most concerned about are telling his people who they are in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, and then urging them to live like it, as we see in the prayer, and we see in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He says, you must get them to understand their spiritual power and then motivate them to use it. I was raised in Liberty Lake, Washington, in the early 80s, when at I-90 and Apple Way there was only a gas station, fields behind it. And with lots of room to roam, my dad bought three-wheelers for my brothers and I. Now, we're one year apart, so you've got three boys that were packed right on top of each other. And in two seconds, two of those three boys sat on those bikes and took off racing through the field. But the faith of the one was in doubt. It needed to be strengthened. The one, he questioned the things that dad had told him about the bike and its operation. There were things that needed to be confirmed. There was doubt. When all he really really needed to do was to trust dad, sit down, and ride that powered bike with joy. Many of us treat faith in Christ the same way. Forgoing great joy in doubt because you haven't read the scriptures, because you don't understand salvation, and because you're not taking this faith, this seed that's been given to you, and running with it. Paul wants to change that in the text. Paul's prayer removes doubt and strengthens our faith. Consider your faith this morning, brothers and sisters. Has it been properly explained to you to the extent that you live faith in Christ? Do you know God's grace alone saved you? Do you know with salvation comes this seed of faith? Do you know how faith works? Are you confused or motivated by what God expects of you? How can you be strengthened in faith to arrive then... At the joy, as the text says, of the fullness of God. Paul's prayer is aimed at strengthening your faith through God's sovereign power and your personal responsibility. He's explained the power of God's salvation, and it's time for you to live the faith that you've been given. It's as if God has walked around a 1967 Camaro and told of you all the beauty and the power that this thing possesses and contains. And he's handing you the key, and he's saying to you, get in, sit down, turn it on, and go. How will you do that? How will you do that? Well, let's read the text. And see, motivating your faith requires all three members of the Trinity. And Paul offers this prayer of petition to God the Father for you to be strengthened with faith that achieves the fullness of God. Verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3. We'll circle back around and specifically this morning I'm going to focus on teaching verses 14 through 17. But I want to set the whole context for you. The whole prayer. Read the whole prayer with me now. Verse 14. Paul prays. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able... To do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Bishop Handley Mool said of this text Who has not read and reread the closing verses of the third chapter of Ephesians with the feeling of one permitted to look through a parted curtain into the holiest place of the Christian life? What makes this a holy place in prayer, this transition from chapter 1 through 3 going into chapters 4 through 6? Paul is connecting the facts of salvation with the faith of salvation. This is the merger, if you will, of the Little Spokane River to the main Spokane River. The confluence of these two. In this prayer, he is merging and blending together seamlessly the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Paul says, for this reason, which is everything he said up to this point, including salvation applied by God alone, union between God and man and man with each other, and the mystery that's been revealed that was hidden for all of these generations. Paul goes on to tie together every request that he will make to God's sovereign power and eternal plan in Christ. He is saying, effectively, because God has told us his plans for us, I bow my knees and ask God to strengthen you. Spirit-powered strengthening leads to faith. Faith to love and love to the fullness of God. Do you see the chain of events, the sequence, the links in this chain? Do you see them? It's like climbing the rungs of a ladder into the Trinitarian fullness of God by faith. Paul has this faith. He's been humbled by this faith. And now he prays in full submission to the Father for others to have this same faith as well. Let me give you a simple outline for the text. A simple outline for the text would go like this. Submission to the Father, petition to the Father, glorification of the Father. Paul's submission to the Father, his petition to the Father, and his glorification to the Father. We will not make it through all those three points today. It's a simple outline for you. We'll work through this over the course of the next three Times that i preach to you on Ephesians. Let me ask you this. How can it be the case that we can be filled up to all the fullness of God and know the love of Christ? How can that be the case? Boy, if you think about your own sinfulness and your own wickedness, how can it be the case that you can be filled up to all the fullness of God? Yet that's the desire of Paul in the text. That's an important concept for you to grab your mind around. Well, are those reasonable expectations? They're in the Word of God, so they absolutely are. They are at reasonable expectations if we know the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man through faith. Paul knows faith, and his prayer for our faith to grow begins with submission to the Father. Let's look at Paul's submission to the Father first, then. Submission to the Father is point number one in your notes. Let's start there. Submission to the Father. Where do we see submission to the Father in the text? This is, a ma- this is coming from a man who knows faith, and he knows how to pray for others to get faith. So this man bows himself, right? He humbles himself. There's submission here. Where do we see submission? First, in a posture of humility. Paul says, I bow my knees. There's an earnestness and devotion in this posture for prayer. When you are burdened, troubled, laboring, and filled with strong desire for God to hear and respond to you, you will likely make your way to your knees in prayer. The common way for Jews to pray was to pray (coughs) standing up. Kneeling is a posture of intensity. In Ezra, chapter 9, Ezra prayed on his knees out of shame and embarrassment of Israel's rebellion to God and marriages to foreigners who worshipped idols. In Daniel, chapter 6, at the threat of being thrown into the lion's den, Daniel prayed three times a day on his knees, as was his custom. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we saw just this last week, just before his death, prayed so intently on his knees, his sweat became like drops of blood, according to Luke, chapter 22, verse 44. We see the kneeling in prayer is done in humility and with great intensity. Such is the case with Paul here, who has strong desire to communicate with God on behalf of the Ephesians, that they would be strengthened with great faith, just as he has come to understand. Second, submission is seen in a personal relationship. We see this in Paul's use of the word father. This is not bold or brash, it's not rude or unbecoming to call God your father. In fact, God delights it when we rightly call him father. He loves for his children to correctly label him as he has designed. For those who are full of faith and know the love of Christ, it's a special blessing to pray to our Father in heaven. Just as Christ taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Father is a personal title of endearment that expresses submission and great depth of relationship. And Paul prays to his personal Father in heaven who knows him and will answer all of his requests. How does Paul know God will answer? Because Paul recognizes God's eternal, sovereign, providential authority. God is the maker and the creator and the sustainer of all life. He is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives their names, according to chapter 3, verse 15. There's an important play on words in Paul's submission to the father at these words. Father, in the text, is patera. Family is patria. Patera, patria. Linguistically, Paul makes a special play on these words because a special family is in view. To show you the special family that's in view, I want you to turn to John chapter 8. Turn to John 8. Let's look at the family that's in view in Paul's prayer. James Montgomery Boyce says, It's not a variety of families that Paul is thinking of here, but one family, the family that derives its very name from God. He advocates for thinking on this phrase in terms of whole family not necessarily every family whole family every family does well whole family does better john stott says this refers to the two parts of one great family of god the church militant on earth and the church triumphant in heaven you know today there are false teachers who don't teach about this one family they they teach one family in the sense of universalism Claiming that God's fatherhood is universal to all mankind, and therefore our brotherhood is universal with all mankind as well, eternally. Is that the case? Is that the case? Or is Paul's emphasis here cited in specifically on God's elect? You're in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, He has again stirred up the anger in the Pharisees by declaring himself to be the light of the world, he says, at the high point of the feast at the last day in chapter 8, verse 12. They obviously don't like this, and they have been seeking to kill him. To which Jesus responds in chapter 8, verse 41. Look at verse 41. Jesus says to these men, You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication, We have one father. God is our father. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but God sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. This is the Apostle John's writings and his understanding and the very words of Jesus Christ himself. Later in his life, the Apostle John will write 1 John 3, verse 10 says this, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Brothers and sisters, God is the father of the righteous. God is the father of the one who loves his brother. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 3. In submission, Paul offers a prayer to God that acknowledges God's eternal authority as seen in God's eternal fatherhood over God's eternally elect family. And as our Father, and the only eternal authority that exists in this world, God alone is the ultimate provider. Paul's third act of submission is turning to God alone in prayer As the ultimate provider. In submission, we've seen that Paul bows his knees. He acknowledges his Father God in heaven and the Father's eternal authority, and he makes his petition to the Father who is the ultimate provider. It's to this petition we need to turn now. We see this in the text at verse 16 where Paul continues his submission now in the form of petition, which is the second point I told you would come in your outline. He's continuing in submission in the form of petition. Paul petitions the Father. This is a prayer. Point number two in your notes, the petition to the Father. We must turn now to Paul's prayer. His desire is for believers to be strengthened with faith that achieves the fullness of God. That's a big desire. (laughs) That's a big desire. To think that you can pray for somebody to be filled with all the fullness of God. And and to believe that that can happen by the Spirit in your own faith, and in the love of Christ. This is the formula. These are the pieces of the formula. And he's got this massive desire, this big desire, that you get all of these things going on, that you climb this ladder, that you step up these stairs, and that you achieve and arrive at the fullness of God. Wow. This is a prayer of motivation. And it's a prayer of mobilization. It's a prayer to take everything that you've been told to believe and understand in chapters 1 through 3... And then move in this life to do the things that God wants you to do, the righteousness that he wants from you in chapters 4, 5, and 6. It is a prayer of mobilization. It is a prayer of deployment for Christian soldiers to spiritually engage this life by the faith that they've been given. As I thought on Paul's prayer, I began to consider, what do men say to mobilize a great effort? What do men say to mobilize a great effort? I considered the Allied attack on the Germans at the beaches of Normandy and General Eisenhower's D-Day message that went out over the airwaves. I considered President Lincoln's address at Gettysburg Gettysburg in in Pennsylvania on the the 19th of November in 1863. You remember his words, Fourscore and seven years ago our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Even this past year, I started to consider what kind of speech and what kind of words mobilize Antifa, a group of radical anti-fascists, to have the great success at violence and property destruction, even as we saw last night in Portland. I I wondered what kind of speech and what kind of words mobilize Trump supporters to descend on the White House in a relatively pathetic coup attempt. I wondered what kind of speech and what kind of words mobilized Baylor University. Now, I mean no harm. I mean no harm to them. But seriously, what kind of words, what kind of speech directed Baylor University athletes to solidly deliver to Gonzaga University, GU, our our Gentile Union? (laughs) Their only defeat in the perfect season they had going on. They must have been words. They must have been words that included authority, ability, identity, purpose, and pleasure. They must have been words that engaged the mind, seized the heart, and compelled the will. And I believe this is exactly what we find in Paul's prayer. With three major differences. And let me just give these to you. Three major differences. Paul's Mobilization calls on God to perform a Trinitarian work, proving the sovereignty of God. These other requests would not do that. Paul's motivation is only applicable to those who are not sons of Satan, but are sons of God. The others motivate all mankind. And third, Paul's prayer expects you to take responsibility for your personal spiritual growth in faith and love of Christ And none of those others would mobilize to do these things. Let's consider now the words Paul chose through the Holy Spirit to mobilize the Ephesians to use the faith that God has given them. Here in his prayer, Paul links three requests for Trinitarian fullness so that we might be filled with faith and love. I'll say this again for you. Paul links... Three requests for Trinitarian fullness so that we might be filled with faith and love. Paul ties together three petitions that will supply our fullness in God through increased faith and love. So, what three requests for Trinitarian fullness does Paul tie together for our motivation and our mobilization in this faith that's been given to us? Paul requests our strengthening in the power of the Spirit. He requests our overflowing in the love of Christ. And he requests, third, our filling with the fullness of God. Strengthening in power by the Spirit, overflowing in the love of Christ, and filling with the love of God. And if you're concerned about the time that we have left, you should be, because we're only going to do point number one on this list. It's all we have time for. I want to specifically look at verses 16 and 17. And I want to study strengthening in the power of the Spirit. Paul's request for our strengthening in the power of the Spirit. These three requests together collectively, points two and three which we'll discuss next week. These three collectively are being linked together. They involve each of the three persons of the Trinity. And they build on one another in the text. These three requests John Stott says, each request builds off the previous like a staircase ascending into the heights of heaven. That's the place we want to be. Now some would just want to race up there real fast. I'm, I'm suggesting that we go a little more slowly. With the time we have left, let's then consider Paul's first request in this prayer from verses 16 and 17. Paul's petition for us to strengthen, to be strengthened in the power of the Spirit. His second and third request for the love of Christ and the fullness of God. Let's look at those next week. For now, let's turn and read in verse 16 how Paul is requesting that we be strengthened in the power by the Spirit. Verse 16 says, That God our Father would grant to you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. As you read through this text, in this prayer you see request result request result it's it's the pattern of the text it's it presents itself three times and, and, and right here we begin the stairs that that step up the strengthening this the, this request for strengthening is, is this first step up to the fullness of god this prayer is perfectly trinitarian father son and spirit how does this first request motivate us in our faith what can we observe in this first request that speaks of authority ability identity purpose and pleasure Does this request engage your mind, seize your heart, and compel your will? Brothers and sisters, it must. It must. I'd like to make six observations of this first request that motivate and mobilize strong faith. Let's let's make six observations of of this first request. Strengthening in the power of the Spirit. Let's look at six observations of this text to be motivated and mobilized to strong faith. Notice first, observation number one, notice first, that Paul appeals to God to grant. He appeals to an authority who has infinite ability. That's a great start for motivation, when you turn to God. Because God must grant, he must give. Strong faith starts with God. Paul doesn't call on his audience to do heavy lifting inside of their own human hearts and their own mind. I love this about Paul. Paul all of his prayers, and the prayers throughout all of Scripture. They don't ask for man to do what man can't do. They call on the power of the sovereignty of God to act on man. I can say to you, they're entirely Calvinistic, these prayers in Scripture, just like this one right here. The prayers of God's apostles and prophets have no regard for the supposed free will of men. And at the same time, the prayers of the Bible serve two functions, God's glory, and man's good. Because the prayers of the Bible call on God to act according to his power, his nature, and his will. This, brothers and sisters, is a formula for eternal success and divine motivation for strong faith. Let's have a second observation then. Observation number two. How does Paul want God to give? What manner of giving is desired? What is the manner of giving? He requests that God give according to his riches. According to his riches. Why would Paul be concerned about God's manner of giving? Because he knows that God is rich. The word rich shows up five times in Ephesians. This is the last use of the word rich. The previous four are in the chapters 1 and 2 and 3. In chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 2, verse 7, we find that God is rich in grace. In chapter 1, verse 18, we find that God is rich in the glories of his church, In chapter 3, verse 8, we see the unsearchable riches of Christ, which also belong to God. And here in verse 16, Paul speaks about the riches of God's glory. The richest man in the world lives in the state of Washington. Do you know his name? Jeff Bezos, reportedly worth $193 billion. Do not try to wrap your mind around what those numbers would look like. Suppose Jeff Bezos makes his way to Spokane, downtown Spokane and he loses his wallet, and you happen to come by and find it, and you return it, and it's $20 that are inside, you return it to him. Would you want him to thank you out of his riches or according to his riches? Out of his riches or according to his riches? You don't go asking people to to give you money for returning stuff. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying to you, it would be entirely more advantageous to be rewarded according to riches as opposed to being... being rewarded out of riches. Paul is wanting us to be given strength according to the riches of God. According to is the highest standard. It's the highest standard. It means in measure to or aligned with. Now, if you were to return Bezos' wallet to him, it's got to be worth a million bucks to you. And yet this is the standard of giving that God has told Paul through his spirit to request of him. Do you get that? God loves to give big. He loves to give big. He gives in proportion to his riches. And oh, by the way, in case you're thinking that we're talking about cars and boats and planes and cash, this is not a prosperity gospel sermon. We're talking about spiritual riches, spiritual treasures, being strong in faith. A third observation for you from the text, a third observation. What should God grant according to his riches? What should he grant according to his riches? Having given us salvation and faith, how can God give more and potentially make us better at being his children? Strengthening. Spiritual muscle. Turning your Bibles to chapter 1 of Luke. Luke chapter 1. We need to be Granted, according to the riches of God, in strengthening spiritually. Paul's good friend Luke uses the same word here, krateo, twice in his gospel account. In both instances that Luke uses the word krateo, give us a picture to help explain its meaning. Some people hear strengthening, and they think, hey, it's time to hit the gym. It's time to get ripped. I need abs for the summer. I'm tired of my girlfriend looking at my flabby arms. They think it's all about physical fitness to, to have strengthening happen to you. It's not. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 tell us, Paul says to Timothy, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. You know, as I, as I read through this and I thought about this, there are so many in this life who struggle and suffer doubt in their salvation, and they're the fittest persons you'll ever know. Huh. Huh. I wonder where you've put your time. I wonder why you struggle with doubt. I wonder if we take some time from the one strengthening and move it to the other, I wonder how much your doubt might disappear. Use your time wisely. Criteo is a word used four times in the Bible for spiritual strengthening. Criteo. When it talks about strengthening, spiritual strengthening is what's in view. Reading the text with me from Luke chapter 1 verse 80. Where Luke says, in verse 80 of chapter 1, And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What child is being strengthened here? You know his name. John the Baptist. He's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Whose strengthening is said to be internal and spiritual. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 40. Luke two forty. Who do we see here? In Luke 2.40, Luke reports in verse 40: the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Who are we looking at here? What child is this? The Lord Jesus Christ, born of Mary, son of David. Does anyone need to know that Jesus grew up physically, ripped and strong? Is that what you need to know? Not at all. Creteo is doing here what it does in each instance of its use. It is telling us about Jesus' spiritual internal strengthening. You can even see the fruit of Jesus' internal strengthening in Luke's comment that Jesus was increasing in wisdom. Internal strengthening, not external. This is what you have need for. It was needed even for John and Jesus to be given of internal strengthening. If we can argue, then, from the greater to the lesser, I would say if John and Jesus needed to be strengthened internally, spiritually, how much more for you? How, then, can believers be strengthened additionally spiritually? Well, now turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, 8, as we consider our fourth observation. You're going to turn to Romans 8. We're going to go into our fourth observation in in our prayer in Ephesians. Believers are strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. That's what the text in Ephesians says. Believers are strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner man. This is a prayer, first, about God's ability, and second, about your ability as well. This is a prayer about ability. First God's, then yours. You need increased spiritual capacity in the power of God. Why do you need increased spiritual capacity in the power of God? Why? Because, brothers and sisters, you should know this. There is a spiritual war raging right now in each and every one of your hearts. Do you know the war that rages inside of you right now? If you are a child of God, you know it all too well. The war between the flesh and the spirit, between the body and the soul, between the desires of the flesh that would love to consume all the things that this world has to offer us. There's so much pleasure to attain. And yet we know all the pursuits and pleasures of this world will leave us bankrupt, empty, doubting, worryful, and full of fear. There's a spiritual war that's raging. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. This is spiritual war. It is waged every moment of every day for those who are saved. Before we read Romans 8, verse 10, which is what I'm going to read for you in just a second, I want to offer you an illustration. So I'm going to take you to Romans 8, 10, but pay attention to me. I want to share something with you that's important. I think it's an illustration that will really help set Romans 8:10 in context for you, and how this spiritual strengthening is supposed to happen for your inner man by the power of the spirit. Several years ago, Legos were a big deal in the Jones house, for one son in particular. One night we were talking about salvation and the power of God, and it happened to be a night that he had sorted out his Legos by color, so there were big piles of all manner of colored pieces, a big pile of black, a big pile of white, a big pile of red and blue. I appreciated that. I took handfuls of the black pieces, handfuls of them, and laid them on the floor in the shape of a man, a body. I laid it on the floor. All those pieces, I just kind of heaped them on the floor and shaped them into a man. Arms. Legs, I can't remember if there's feet or not. There's a head, for sure there's a head and a torso. Hundreds of pieces. And I said, son, this is you or me or anyone before salvation, before Christ. Then I picked up one of the black pieces from the center of the chest. And I pulled it up and I held it up to him. And I said, this is your wicked, sinful heart, which gives its light, which is darkness, its light is darkness, to the whole of your black, sin-stained, sin-filled body. How dark then, son, is the darkness that this heart projects over that dark body? And think about this. All the pieces in the body love the extra darkness from that dark heart. There's no body and soul war in that black Lego peace body. There's no, there's no war. Then I told him about salvation. Salvation works like this. God reaches into your darkness and grabs that dark heart that's lighting up all the other dark pieces of your dark body and throws that dark heart out. He throws that dark heart away. Then I took a white Lego piece and I placed it as the new heart in the center of that black Lego piece body and I told him, God does Lego heart surgery just like this on all men. God places a new heart, pure and clean inside of you, which beams the light of God out of it continually over all of those other pieces in your body. And I told him the black Lego body is dead to God, but the new Lego heart is alive to God in Christ. And right here is the war between flesh and spirit. Who will win that war? The one piece versus the hundreds. Will the black body Lego pieces take over that white heart piece? Or will the white heart piece? the one by itself, overtake the black pieces of that body. Where is the power, I ask you? What is the answer? Read with me, Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. Paul says this in Romans 8, 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, God who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I picked up the black Lego pieces one at a time. And I said, over the course of your life, son, this is what the power of God through his spirit will do in you. And I replaced, one for one, black Lego piece with white Lego piece. Black Lego piece with white Lego piece. Brothers and sisters, that's what the text says. The white heart will overcome your black sinful pieces one at a time. The spirit will conquer the flesh. The new man is stronger than the old man. The soul filled with Christ is superior to the sin-filled body. Your inner man is strengthened in power by the spirit to subdue the outer man. Your capacity is increased to do the righteousness of God because your old, dark, sinful nature is being converted into a new righteous nature one Lego piece at a time. And this, and in this transformation, in this conversion, your faith is made stronger. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. You know, modern psychology does not approve of the biblical simplicity in the text that I've been sharing with you, which teach us that man is, at his nature, two essential parts, an inner man and an outer man. We call this understanding of man's essence dichotomism. Dichotomism: Inner man, outer man. Two, dichotomism. And it's helpful to understand dichotomism as we make our fifth observation. Observation number five. The Lord Jesus Christ dwells in your inner man, your heart, by faith. The Lord Jesus Christ dwells in your inner man, your heart, by faith. Well, how is that, brothers and sisters, for motivation, identity, purpose, and even eternal pleasure? To know that the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. You see, this is a very personal relationship that he establishes with us. He knows our hearts, so he must know our names. In chapter 3, verse 17, we read that Christ, the whole purpose of the powered strengthening by the Holy Spirit is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The Greek verb here is katecheo. It's a special word that means to dwell, to reside, or to settle down. And it gives the clear sense of homemaking over lodging. Yes, Jesus takes up residence inside of the hearts of believers like he knows you, like he knows you personally. And I hope this isn't a newsflash to you, but great if it is, because this is the case. And it would have been the case to be a newsflash for the disciples of Jesus in John chapter 14, 23, on the night before his death when he was betrayed. When at that last supper he told them in John fourteen twenty-three, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Yes, brothers and sisters, it is the case that God lives inside believers as well. Inside of us is the Trinitarian fullness of God because of the power of the Spirit. How is it possible? It's possible because that's what God promised us. God sends his Holy Spirit to regenerate us throwing out our old heart of stone, washing and cleansing us and giving us a new heart. Read Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Read Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that God sealed us and gave us his spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And as we read chapter 1 of Acts, and as we read from John 14, 23, and the whole night of glory, we understand that when the spirit comes in in power... He's not alone. The Spirit doesn't operate by means of Zoom or FaceTime, okay? When the Spirit is there, the person of God is there. And the Father and the Son are there as well. Certainly someone will ask, why didn't God give the Spirit in Christ then in their fullness? Why does Paul need to ask for strengthening for Christ to dwell in us? Why do we need to make this request to begin with? That's a great question. I appreciate that question. If, that's what you're, if that question is on your mind, I want to settle your heart with this answer. Allow me to answer your question by perhaps resetting your thinking. Just resetting your thinking if this is your thought. If this is your question, understand that your thought process in that question begins with the belief that God is flawed. Where the right answer and the right understanding of the text understands that everything in man is flawed. Everything in man is flawed. God gives us faith as a gift. Does that mean that we operate in perfect faith at all times? Not a chance. And you live it and you know it. Not a chance. Strengthening then has to happen because the seed of our faith is planted in the weakness of our flesh. Strengthening has to happen because the seed of our faith is planted in the weakness of our flesh. Not because of any failure at all in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. John MacArthur says, Jesus dwelling in you has to do with the quality of his presence, not the fact of his presence. What would keep us from understanding greater quality of Jesus' presence inside of us? The many remaining sinful black Lego pieces that make up your flesh. Our old decaying outer man shields us from experiencing the fullness of the love of Christ and the fullness of the person of God and the fullness of the power of the Spirit. Nasty, that wicked man. Nasty, that sinful flesh. But I can tell you this again. Romans eight eleven, God is giving life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within us. Our sinful flesh is being converted. It's being converted, brothers and sisters, into righteous flesh in degree... Every day, Second Corinthians chapter three verse 18 says, "We are being transformed into the same image of the Lord, from one degree of glory to another, and this, day by day, through the work of the Spirit." How must we respond to the Trinitarian presence of God dwelling inside of us? By faith. How do you respond? By faith. Remember, faith is a gift. God gives faith as a gift. And our response to this gift has to be action. It has to be action on this gift. That's what he wanted in giving it to us. Many of you are grandparents. What an awkward thing for you to give a gift to a child and they just stare at it. That would just break your heart if they just opened the box and and sat the teddy bear on the stool and just looked at it and said, Ah, the teddy bear. You want them to grab the bear and squeeze it and pull it in. You want action. You expect that. How is God any different with His gift to you of faith? You have to act in this life. You have to respond. You have to move. You do that by faith. God wants our faith to grow, He wants our faith to become strong. He's given us the faith and He's given us all the tools to be strengthened in our faith, and He expects us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who has worked within us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Boy, and in that verse, you clearly see the beautiful blending of the sovereignty of God the giver and the responsibility of man the receiver. Johnny Erickson Tata says of faith, she said, faith isn't the ability to believe long and far into the misty future. Faith is simply taking God at his word and taking the next step. This captures faith quite well. Believe God and behave like you believe God. Believe, behave. Which brings us to our sixth and final observation of Paul's first request in prayer. Remember, two requests for, in Paul's prayer were coming next week. We're just looking at request number one, to be strengthened in the power of the Spirit. I have a sixth observation for you. Sixth observation is this. Faith is a gift of God that becomes your primary responsibility in this life. Faith is a gift of God that becomes your primary responsibility in this life. More so than your marriage. Your faith. There's nothing greater for you to attend to than your faith. Feed your faith. Your faith. None of you young men should be upset if a rich man ever comes to you and gives you that 1967 Chevy Camaro. You should never be upset. He'd come and give it to you with all the money that you needed for its care. How would you treat that Camaro? You would get into that Camaro and you would drive it. You'd wash it and wax it. You'd have it properly insured and maintain it. You'd make room for it. You'd read magazine about it. You'd share it with others and and talk about that car, that four-speed power when you hit the interstate. Second year. You'd talk about that. You'd enjoy that. You'd go get more of that. Faith is a better gift of God than a sixty seven Camaro. Far better. Faith is the tiniest seed of belief God puts into your heart to trust Him and His Word, that you are a sinner, that Jesus is the Saviour, and your obligation is to repent and believe. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is certainty, boldness, and strength. Did you get that? Faith is certainty, brothers and sisters. Certainty. Are you certain that God is? And that he sent his son. That his son died and was resurrected and ascended into heaven like we read this morning. Do you believe that? Do you know it? Are you certain? Boy, my faith is certain. I I have boldness and strength not because it's inherent in me. I have boldness and strength because of God and his promises that I read in his word. Martin Luther was as bold. He was a bold reformer, far bolder than any one of us here in this room. All of our boldness combined is is not as much boldness as Martin Luther in his faith. He knew about assurance. He said this, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that the believer who would stake his life on it would stake his life on it a thousand times over. Luther's confidence was big. And God used him to kick off the Protestant Reformation. Most often, faith starts with less certainty. Even what we can understand is weak faith. Faith that needs to be strengthened. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And let's see how a woman's little faith worked and was strengthened. Matthew chapter 9. Ephesians 2 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves as a gift of God. God's gift of faith is rightly compared to a seed, to a seed that is planted in the soil of your soul, the soil of your being. Think pumpkin seed or cucumber, tomato, mustard seed. It's tiny the seed is. But it's packed with all the power required to grow to maturity. It just needs some, someone to take responsibility for it. Will the seed grow strong without care in the way of potting and the way of watering? No, the seed won't grow. And just as with agricultural seeds, so the seed of faith given by God comes with human responsibility. God requires our involvement for the seed of our faith to grow strong. Faith grows strong when we know God's thoughts... And walk in God's ways. When you believe God, obey him and pursue him. Matthew chapter 9 is where you're at. Consider the belief and the pursuit of God that comes from the simple faith of a troubled woman who approaches Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9 verse 20. Verse 20. And a woman who had been suffering, the text says. Suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. Came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, in her own heart to herself, from thoughts that had been planted in her, from God himself. She said this to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. From the seed of God-given faith... She believed and pursued, and she was rewarded. In this story of faith, we see, again, blended so clearly, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 3, and we'll close our time. Your faith is impossible without the sovereignty of God. He must give you the seed of faith. And your faith doesn't grow without you taking responsibility for the gift that you've received. You must do your part to be responsible as God had designed with the faith that he's given to you. Paul's prayer reflects both of these truths so well. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. How could you experience the fullness of God in any other way? Never could you do this on your own. Ever. And God has no obligation to spoon-feed you strong faith as if you were a baby. The plans for God's elect, God's sons, have been set and predetermined from eternity past. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. By grace you have been saved through faith. The Spirit strengthens you. Your faith increases. King Jesus takes his place and makes his home and abode in your heart, which makes you rooted and grounded in love. Verse 17. Verse 17, that you are rooted and grounded in love. And if you are rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, this next step, the steps, the steps up into the fullness of God. Verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up with all of the fullness of God. That's the desire for you. That's where your faith can go. You need strengthening by the power of the Spirit. You need to understand the love of Christ. And you will head to the fullness of God. And the question for you today is this. Do you desire the fullness of God? Do you desire the fullness of God? Or does your flesh continually call you to the other cares of this world. And draw you away from a spiritual pursuit. From nurturing the seed of faith that lives inside of you. To nurturing your desires and passions. You can go through a whole list of what those would be. We all have many individual pursuits. Do you desire to know the love of Christ? Do you desire Holy spirit strength and faith? You know, before we even get there, are you saved? Has God shown His grace and given you the gift of faith to believe in Him? We'll continue to look at Paul's prayer next week. And consider the last two requests in this prayer for Trinitarian fullness. For now, I want to leave you with these thoughts to consider about your desires. Specifically your desire to be strengthened in your faith? Hold on to these questions, will you? Do you believe God is sovereignly in charge over all things, especially salvation and faith? Do you believe that? How thrilled are you to know that strengthening your faith is a Trinitarian effort involving the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do you pray for God to strengthen your faith and the faith of others and the power of the Spirit? That their faith might increase as well? Are you motivated by Paul's prayer to grow strong in your faith? Are you ready to take personal responsibility? Brothers and sisters, is the curtain of faith pulled back? And can you see the glory of God and our good in God's eternal plan to give you a seed of faith and for him to work on that seed and for you to work on that as well? That's his desire. Let us pray. Father God, what an incredible salvation you've given to us. So clearly we can see your salvation and your sovereign, powerful hand at work in our lives, delivering, sustaining, even strengthening us. Lord, we repent for not taking ownership of the faith that you've given to us. We do have responsibility before you to grow in our faith that Christ may dwell in us. Father, Strengthen all of us, please. We pray for the strength of the power of your Spirit, that we too might grow in our faith. Allow your word to engage our minds, seize our hearts and compel our will to believe you and obey you all the more because of all of this. And in all of this, your eternal glory is at stake. And with your eternal glory, our eternal good. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.